so we have just half an hour left. So I, I really just wanted to spend some time with the, this third dimension of embodiment, which is the embodiment of insight or the embodiment of understanding. And just to repeat again something I said earlier, that insights are not something we have. You know, it's not a sort of portfolio. Um, insights are something we, we practice, you know, that we embody. Uh, otherwise, we've just sort of got a, a you know, a, a, a sort of memory bank of insights. So I think this is a, this dimension of embodiment is, is the movement from conceptual knowing to lived experience. And I think it's perhaps the most challenging domain of embodiment and yet somehow the most pivotal because this is really about how we dissolve dissonance um, and, and how we, we dissolve the discomfort that dissonance brings because dissonance leaves so many residues in our mind of, of shame and regret and judgment and a world of shoulds. So I, I've made up a list of things that we know, things that we understand. This is not things that I understand. I think this is probably things that we all understand. And we could all make up our own list and we could certainly add to this list. So think of this list as being a starting point of what we know and what we're asked to embody, okay? So we do all know about change and impermanence, don't we? Does anybody not know this? We didn't need the Buddha to tell us about change and impermanence. Hmm? This is something we all know our whole life has been teaching us about the unarguable nature of change. Sometimes welcome, sometimes unwelcome, but it is. We know about loss. We know the landscape of loss. Has anybody been untouched? No. We know this. We know this. First, I'm going to make the, the list of what we know and understand, but recognizing that we may only have a sort of cursory acknowledgement of our understanding. It might seem to serve us better not to know. But then we would have to ask the question, does it actually serve us better not to know? So we know about change and impermanence. Well, we all know about uncertainty and instability, don't we? All the ways our world can crumble in a moment. In one day, almost two years ago, my entire world changed. I'm sure this is true for most of you. you know? It just changed everything. You know? How I lived, how I related, how I worked how I acted, what I was able to do, it all changed in a moment. We all know about uncertainty and the instability of conditions. We all know about dukkha. We all know about vulnerability. We all know that we're vulnerable to all of the changes, the instability, the pain, that we're vulnerable to beliefs and insufficiency. We all actually know on some level that we don't have an exemption from the first ennobling truth. We might still find ourselves seeking exemptions, 
But on some core level, we actually know that we don't have an exemption. I think it takes only a little bit of investigation to know that self is not a noun, but a verb. An endlessly changing process shaped by conditions and shaped by clinging. I think we know this in our own experience. We know, I think we know this, that to live in a world governed by craving, fear and aversion only has one outcome. In emotional and psychological pain, defensiveness and ill will. I think our life has taught us this. You know? I think we know this. We know the power of generosity. That without the generosity of so many in our lives, we would not be here. Um, we know the small acts of generosity that we engage in ennobles our own hearts and is a service to others. We know this. I think we, we know the value of mindfulness, of, of being present in our lives that enables responsiveness, appreciation and refuge from being lost in the past and future in the present preoccupations. I think we know the power of being aware and being awake. I think we, we know the power of kindness and compassion. I think we, we have seen this in our own lives. We've been touched by the kindness and compassion of others. We know what a difference it makes in our lives and in our world. I think we know that grasping and clinging leads only to agitation. And we've all known moments when grasping and clinging is not happening. And they are moments of peace. They are moments of coolness. I think we know this experientially. I think we know that genuine joy and happiness is inwardly generated. Certainly there, there is much in life to be appreciated that gladdens the heart, um, that you know, brings a smile to the heart. But I think we know that enduring happiness and joyfulness and peace is inwardly generated and not just dependent upon having ideal pleasant conditions. I think we know this. I think that we know that clinging is a prison and that non-clinging is a place of freedom. So this is just a, this is a beginning list. I just want to say this is a, this is a beginning list, and I'm sure you could all add to it of the things that you know. And I think sometimes it's quite a useful exercise to to write your own personal list of what you know. You know what you know about what creates distress, and what you know about what brings distress to an end. Think of it as a useful homework and exploration and how that list might change you know, and how it might be added to and, and how it might seem almost endless. It might seem almost endless. 
Um, it's interesting, isn't it, about what we know and what we live. It's interesting how the gap can be there between what we actually really do know and how we live. That kind of dissonance, that sort of gap that can feel deeply uncomfortable. Rick Hansen, who is a, he's a, a psychologist, he, he wrote about this process of moving from unconscious incompetence to conscious incompetence, then to conscious competence. I find that quite a useful map. You think about unconscious incompetence. We actually don't even know what's going on, you know? And so we act badly or we act foolishly or we just feel to be a prisoner of our impulses, our reactivity. We just feel like we're blown about like a leaf in the wind and we actually have no idea what's going on and no idea of how to do anything about that bewilderment. You know, this is unconscious incompetence, kind of like, you know, just trying to, you know, survive, just trying to survive rather than to thrive, you know, um, and not really knowing either what's happening or how to meet what is happening. Then there's this domain of conscious incompetence, which I feel that most people in this path can spend really quite a long time in this domain. Um, of conscious incompetence, we actually know what's going on and we're doing it anyway. You know, we know how we get into trouble and we're getting into trouble anyway. You know, we know the consequences of ill will or craving and we're doing it anyway. You know, um, we know the consequences of clinging and there it is again. This, this kind of conscious incompetence, this is often when people give up on the path. You know, they think this is impossible. You know, I'm just going around in circles. You know, I've been here so many times before. Nothing's changing. And here I am spinning that wheel one more time. And this is a place where often people feel that you know, a lot of doubt and a lot of despair and a lot of self-judgment, you know, and what am I doing wrong? You know, and I wasn't cut out for this. This conscious incompetence can really last a very long time, perhaps a lot of our practice lives. And then we find that it starts to lessen. Then we find that it starts to lessen. It, it, it's almost like we have to learn the same lessons over and over again before they actually imprint and we say, I got it. You know, and, and the, the inclination to follow pathways of distress making start to disappear. You know, like, like I, I, I just really have a choice. I, I don't have to go down those pathways of distress making. So it's very important in this phase of conscious incompetence, not to succumb to judgment or doubt, but to know this is, this is one of those passageways we walk through between what we know and what we don't know. It's one of those passageways that we walk through from what is familiar to us to what is unfamiliar. And it takes such a lot of patience and willingness to, to show up for conscious incompetence, you know, um, so that we actually really do learn the lessons. I think don't be dispirited by conscious incompetence, you know. 
how many times I've I, on, in teaching retreats, you know, and people come for 30 years and they, and they come in the 30th year and they hear a talk of impermanence and they say, I just got it. You know, I just got it. This knowing has implications, you know, or, or they hear it. They hear a talk on, on, on kindness, you know, and after 20 years, you know, I just got it. You know, uh, this, this process of moving from knowing or cursory acknowledgement to understandings that are embedded in our bones is truly a process. And we find ourselves gradually, gradually, but very happily moving towards conscious competence. Where the intentions that we deeply honor, that we deeply value, the aspirations and values that we deeply honor and value are somehow naturalized. It's like we can't turn away from them. You know, it's like the Buddha says, an awakened being cannot forget about impermanence and dukkha and non-self. They cannot forget about this. So there is something about that naturalization process where, you know, we're not trying to set intentions anymore. Intentions are quite organically guiding us. You know, but this is a huge step because this is a talking about, you know, the really the uprooting of ill will, you know, the, the uprooting of greed, the uprooting of confusion, but also you see it in small ways, okay? It's not just one big moment. You see it in small ways. I mean, those of you who've been practicing for some time, have you seen things fall away? Have you seen things fall away? Yeah. I'm sure you have. I'm sure, oh, gosh, you, you suddenly realize that. Actually, I'm not that impatient person I used to be. You know? Or, or I'm not that judgmental person that I was so familiar with. And you see things fall away. And, and you see that, that falling away is something so important to acknowledge and to be gladdened by and to appreciate. You know, you see, oh, actually, I'm not doing fantasy anymore. You know, like, when did that stop? You know, um, it's fallen away. And sometimes in that falling away, you are so confident in the falling away that you know that it's not temporarily hiding somewhere. You know, you're really confident. This is actually falling, fallen away. And, you know, we do ask the questions of, of, you know, what is it that makes us forgetful, that creates dissonance? What is it that creates the gap between what we value and aspire to and what we embody? That's the first question. It's a really good question to contemplate. You know, what is it that makes us forgetful of everything that we most deeply value, aspire to and intend to? And the, the, another question I think it's important to ask is, what is needed for us to naturalize our knowing? to let it sink into our bones and be the foundation of our thoughts and our words and actions. And I think there's so many factors involved in this shift from dissonance to embodiment, you know, mindfulness, kindness, compassion, the willingness to begin again, you know, dedication, investigation, perseverance, 
inspiration and effort. And I, I think that, you know, when we look at these factors that support embodiment, you know, it, it's another good question to ask is, you know, where are we kind of like adept at this? Where are we strong? And where are we less strong? You know, I, I think sometimes about the area of intentionality that, you know, too many people suffer with overgeneralized intentionality. You know, I'm going to be mindful today. Good luck. You know, when we're speaking about yes, uh, earlier on, when someone says, I'm really going to practice with the intention of inhabiting the body as the only thing I'm doing. That's a spe specific intention. And that's something you can really follow through with and allow it to deepen and allow it to ripen and to really sink, you know, to, to say, I'm going to, I'm going to practice with a specific intention of embodying kindness in my speech and my acts and my thinking. Try staying with that for a week or a month or a year, you know, allowing it, allowing it really to sink. You know, try practicing with the intention of noticing the moments of non-clinging in your day. Because there are many of them, far more perhaps than you might appreciate. You know, where are the moments of non-clinging, non-contractedness in your day? You know, and what is the felt sense of those moments? It's, it's not a vacuum. It, it, you know, when, we, when we're not clinging to something or when, not, when clinging is not happening, it doesn't mean that there's a vacuum left behind. Something else is present. Might be a greater sense of spaciousness, appreciation, stillness. Cultivating that, those intentions, we begin to, to really know that insight has implications. You know, embodying and practicing insight really has implications. What are the implications of really understanding impermanence? Really understanding that, that every thought, every experience, every person has written on it that it's just passing through. Doesn't this kind of, you know, to really know that, does, doesn't it kind of make a mockery of clinging? You know, that this is what's happening to try and make the world stand still for us? You know? It kind of makes a mockery of clinging and grasping. Um, I think that there's a need to, to make ourselves less prone to clinging and contractedness, you know, to more prone to unbinding, you know, cultivating, you know, calmness in our lives, not just on our cushion, stillness, spaciousness. What are the implications of living in an uncertain and unstable world of conditions? Where do we find refuge? Where do we find refuge? The Buddha once says that it makes no sense that I who is mortal, changing every moment, makes no sense for me to try to find refuge in that which is also impermanent and unstable. This is true, isn't it? it makes no sense for us to try and find you know, safety and protection and certainty in that which is uncertain and unstable. You know, so where is refuge for us? Refuge is, is, is often, you know, 
really simple. I just feel my feet touch the ground in this moment. You know, we find refuge in, in understanding. We find refuge in the in the kind of ennobling qualities. You know, what are the implications of really understanding vulnerability, our vulnerability to, to pain and to illness and to loss? You know, the implications of this is that, you know, we learn to turn towards rather than to fear. We, we learn to release judgment and blame. Um, we stop making an enemy of pain and learn that all things can be befriended. And this eases our way through life. What are the implications of understanding that self is a verb, selfing, rather than a noun? I think the implications is that we become quite curious about reading the signals of selfing, the creating of the other. Learning to read these signals and to hold them lightly rather than moving into the realms of calcifying and solidifying. We learn that craving and aversion and fear are certainly not life sentences. And in the midst of them, the implication of knowing that and knowing how harmful they are is learning to cultivate contentment and kindness and curiosity in the midst of them. To know our mortality, I think the implication of this is really, really learning to live our lives fully, not to postpone, you know, not to feel like we're in a waiting room. You know, when I, I was teaching in the early stages of the pandemic, you know, when I, I must, it became my mantra, you know, this is not a waiting room. You know, this is not a waiting room. We're not in this waiting room waiting for life to begin. This is our life now. You know, however it is, this is not a waiting room. And how easily we can get into that in times of difficulty. You know, this is a waiting room. This is where, where I have to be before my real life begins, you know, or before happiness begins. So, you know, before, before connectedness begins, this is not a waiting room. You know, and, and it's so easy to get into that mind, you know, uh, you're practicing and you, you, you may meet a difficult set of conditions. And you think, well, well, when this is over, I'm going to be really peaceful. You know, or when this is over, I'm, I'm going to be really mindful. Uh, this is what I call postponement practice. You know, and I, I don't think postponement practice and mindfulness practice really go hand in hand. And I think it's helpful to remind us ourselves that no matter how it is, it's not a waiting room. So I think that pretty much covers what I would like to say today about embodiment and really feeling that this is a you know this is a, this is a personal journey. It, it's really a journey of investigation. It's a journey of engagement. You know. It's a journey of holding that question in our minds, you know, quite consciously. What are we embodying in this moment? What is being embodied in this moment? And what can be embodied in this moment? And I think that the path always holds these two dimensions of knowing what is happening and knowing what is possible. You know, and the great gift of mindfulness, of course, is, is 
is that we discover we have choices. You know, we have choices about what is being embodied, what is being practiced, what is being cultivated. We have choices about where we place our attention and the quality of that attention and mindfulness. I think embodiment is about making good choices. It's about making good choices. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.